0: Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of Left podcast in which we shall learn about the insurrection and police violence through the lens of white supremacy and the rise of the likes of Tucker Carlson, who has become the leading spokesman for laundering white supremacist talking points through a marginally Respectable facade. Clips today are from All In with Chris Hayes, a progressive faith sermon from Dr. Roger Ray, last week tonight with John Oliver, The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, The Tom Hartman Program, The Mehdi Hassan Show, and The Muckrake Political Podcast. And stay tuned at the end of the show for a big announcement about our first ever live event that you will be able to join and participate in for free from the comfort of your own home. That's coming up on May 10th, and there's a link to details in the show notes. You can register just to be reminded there, but again, it's free. And as I said, I'll tell you all about it at the end of the show. But for now, enjoy.
1: Today was a wrenching day in the Minneapolis area where the trial of former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin continued... As his lawyers put forward their defense for the killing of George Floyd, all the while in the streets, people are out mourning, angry, protesting, chanting, traumatized about the police shooting and killing of Dante Wright just a few miles away. And all of this happening as we approach the one year anniversary of George Floyd's death. The inescapable context of this is not just Floyd's death, it is the aftermath of that death. And the protests and the police response to those protests. And it is also, inescapably, what happened on January 6th at the U.S. Capitol. And taking all this together, it is very hard not to see some fundamental contradictions in how our country, the state, wields force against its citizens, in terms of who has authority, and who defers to whom in a police encounter, and who, in the end, fears whom. In the case of George Floyd, Derek Chauvin's defense is centered around Floyd being a threat, a figure so fearsome, so terrifying, and unruly that he had to be subdued and knelt on for more than nine minutes long after he took his last breaths. In their case, that is how dangerous he was. That's how terrifying he was. And you hear that a lot. Police officers, when they shoot a civilian, that they were scared. In the case of Dante Wright, we have a 20-year-old man who was pulled over for an expired registration before officers discovered he had a warrant out for his arrest. And Dante Wright was treated roughly, manhandled a bit. He was handcuffed. He was ordered around like a supplicant in a way that is fundamentally invasive to his dignity. It's not enjoyable if you've ever been at the other end of that kind of interaction. When he attempted to get out of that situation... He was shot, and killed at point-blank range by an officer who says she mistook her gun for a taser. Everything about that interaction, everything about the George Floyd interaction, the police are the ones with the authority, the control. They have the weapons on their side. They have the authority of the government. And in both cases, they let both those men know they are in charge. That same dynamic plays out in so many of the protests we see right after these killings with these enormous shows of police force. You remember Elijah McClain, the 23-year-old black man who died in 2019 after police restrained him with a chokehold, who begged that he was an introvert, that he hadn't done anything wrong. His death got new attention last summer following George Floyd's killing. And when people congregated to hold a peaceful violin vigil in his memory, he played that instrument. This is how the police in Aurora, Colorado, responded. They stormed right into a peaceful vigil and ended up pepper spraying unarmed mourners at an event commemorating the life of someone killed by police. Now, this is an example. It's a bad one, but we sort of almost took it at random. I mean, this happened last summer in the middle of the largest civil rights protests against police brutality in modern history. Literally millions of people participating in every state in the nation. And it is true. We should be clear that there are examples. They're documented. You can find video, right, of violence By those and other protesters, examples of lawlessness and property damage throughout the country in the context of tens of thousands of protests. But in the context of tens of thousands of protests and millions and millions of protesters, only a very small percentage of people were violent. And yet the police prepare, prepared and prepare for those protests like they were going to war. I mean, pick the city, Buffalo, New York City, Denver, Colorado, Portland, Oregon. Atlanta, Georgia, wherever, they look like that. They look like they're going to war. They have shields. They have big equipment. And they do that because they want to let people protesting know who is in charge, who holds the authority, who will bend the knee to whom. That's the point explicitly. It's a psychological performance. That's what we saw on the streets of Minneapolis and Brooklyn Center over the last few nights, a show of force with curfews and tear gas and flashbangs. And now just take all of that, all that footage we've seen before last summer, during last summer and since. And now take all of that. And just look for a moment at the utter inversion of what happened on the steps of the Capitol in January. There was hardly any police presence at all. I mean, there were officers there, right? And I've covered multiple protests in Washington. There tends to be a lot of cops around when people are protesting, particularly on the mall or the Capitol. But on January 6th, there was, relatively speaking, almost no one there. They don't have the big MRAPs and the huge bits of equipment brought in. They have these little stanchions in front of them, like they look like bike racks. But it's not just the actual fortifying the presence. It's it's also notable in the interactions of the police with the people. Again, who's doing the intimidating? Who is ordering who around in those interactions? During the insurrection, it is the overwhelmingly white mob telling the cops what to do, barking orders at them. It is the mob with the authority. It is the mob that has the cops trying to cajole and negotiate with the rioters. I mean, and you could hardly blame them. They're outnumbered. They're in physical danger, right? But the fact that it got to that point, the fact that it got to that point is what's so shocking
2: any chance i can get you guys yeah. to leave the senate wing we will i've
3: been making sure i ain't disrespecting the place okay i just want to let you guys know this is like the sacredest <laughs> place
1: any chance i can get you guys to leave the capital i mean how many black folks in this country that are pulled over for a taillight air freshener how many get that as the opening line of the officer at the window a police officer gently asking insurrectionists to leave the Senate chamber. This was the attitude, despite the fact there are hundreds of people at that moment violently invading the center of American democracy in an explicit attempt to subvert the peaceful transfer of power. Despite the fact that nearly 150 police officers were injured, cops, their eyes gouged out and were beaten and tased and crushed and concussed and threatened to be shot with their own guns. And despite all that, there was one One discharge of a weapon, as far as we know. And fair warning, it is disturbing to watch. The tragic shooting and killing of rioter Ashley Babbitt. At the moment when she was about to bust through a broken window, with hundreds upon hundreds of screaming angry people behind her, beating down the window, steps from the chamber that contained at that moment actual members of Congress. And in that moment, as a last resort, that officer there with the gun fired one shot. And he killed her. Today, the Justice Department said it will not file charges against the officer who shot Babbitt. And it is awful that she is dead. But think about the standard of the use of force here. Think about the use of that weapon. Think about the conceptions of fear. And if those conceptions of fear and authority, of domination and subservience, if those that applied to Dante Wright and George Floyd and millions of people of color who have dealt with police encounters... Imagine if that had been brought to bear on that crowd in the Capitol. It would have been a massacre. Of course, if you brought that to bear, it never would have happened because the police would have been armed and ready for a riot like they were at the vigil for Elijah McLean. And in fact, that is precisely what we are learning from this devastating new report about the January 6th insurrection by the Capitol Police inspector general. The report finds the Capitol Police were warned three days before the riot of the threat. Quote, unlike previous post-election protests, the targets of the pro-Trump supporters are not necessarily the counter protesters as they were previously, but rather Congress itself is the target on the 6th. The inspector general quoted the intelligence warning as saying, stop this deal's propensity to attract white supremacists, militia members and others who actively promote violence may lead to a significantly dangerous situation for law enforcement and the general public alike. They were specifically warned and they did not prepare. They did not prepare the way they prepare for just about every protest we've seen police at. And that is because of the racialized suspicion that's the heart of this whole thing, the conception of who's a criminal and the conception of who is a threat, the conception of who will transgress the order, who has to be managed and controlled, is so deeply embedded in both American society and law enforcement. You cannot separate race from that in the context of American law and order and policing. And we've just seen the starkest example we've ever seen. We all sat back and we watched. We watched people break in lawlessly, violently, recklessly, stroll through the Capitol, and then walk away with no arrests, no handcuffs. Single shot fired, a woman killed among hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people. Everyone in this country has now watched these two standards in front of our own eyes. Ellie, I mean, I guess the the different standards, the different conceptions of who is to be feared and and suspicious and criminal and who the police force should be deployed against is not new, but I just cannot watch any of this right now and not think about the sex. How about you?
4: I mean, Chris, welcome to my life for 42 years, right? I mean, the the sad reality is that this is the country that white people want, that a majority of white people want. These are the people that, that a majority of white people vote for. These are the standards that a majority of white people are comfortable with. These are the judges that a majority of white people support. And we know that this is happening because a majority of white people want it, because whenever there is a movement, a moment, an opportunity, a law, a legislation, a case, a chance to change it, a majority of white people resist it. That's how we know that this is what a majority of white people want. Now, we might find here and there a couple of individuals that white people are willing to throw overboard and abandon. Derek Chauvin might be one such individual that people are willing to to be done with and pretend like he's he's a bad apple or a rogue agent. But when it comes to the systemic issues and when it comes to the systemic change that we need in the society, a majority of white people resist that change. I can therefore only infer that a majority of white people like it this way. They want the permissiveness of white violence and they want the -the over-the-top crackdown on black bodies.
5: St. Louis broke another glass ceiling by electing Tashura Jones as mayor. And she came into office promising that race would no longer be an afterthought in St. Louis government and policing. And as I was reading a news story about this, it was almost a throwaway line that the journalist offered to just acknowledge that in the 1,500-member police force in St. Louis, that there are two police unions. One for white police officers and one for black police officers. This is so implausible in in 2021 that I feel like I need to say it again. In St. Louis, there are two unions representing the police force, one for black officers and one for white officers. Now, this is not the 1960s when I started school in a segregated all-white school in rural Kentucky. This is not a, a museum piece of photographs of coloreds only and whites only signs outside of restrooms or by water fountains. This is right now in St. Louis, Missouri, one of our country's major cities. Of course, it would be impossible to maintain this segregation if black members of the St. Louis Police Force now wanted to join the white police union. It started out as a matter of necessity. It's just never gone away because black members of the police force are painfully aware of the deep racism that exists among the white members of the police. A perfect illustration of their very rational distrust can be seen in the case of Detective Luther Hall, seen here working undercover during a demonstration in 2017. Three white officers mistaking Detective Hall for a demonstrator knocked him to the ground and beat him so severely that he was hospitalized where he underwent several surgeries to recover from the incident. And last month... After three years of political wrangling, the people who beat him, the three white officers who beat him so severely, were acquitted of all charges by an all-white jury. You don't have to know a lot about St. Louis to wonder, how do you get an all-white jury in St. Louis? Folks, this is no longer something that we can wave off as being either media hype or exaggerated claims of police abuse uh, by the black community. It's just true. Black people don't fare well in encounters with the police, whether they're guilty or innocent, whether they fully cooperate when they're being arrested or whether they resist arrest. Even when they're asleep in their bed in their own home, they don't fare well. And as in Detective Hall's case, even when you are a member of the police force, at work you don't fare well. Thursday, the police in Chicago shot and killed 13-year-old Adam Toledo as he surrendered to the police. They told him to drop the gun he was carrying, to stop and raise his hands, which he did. And with his empty hands raised... They shot him right in the chest and killed him. Thirteen. Thirteen. He didn't even get to go to high school. He didn't go to prom. He never had a girlfriend. Nothing. Thirteen. And obeying police orders was shot anyway. And after these egregious events, the judicial, the judicial system makes it all that much worse when they immediately began to try to say that they were following police procedures. Allegations of racism in the Minneapolis Police Department, where some estimates say that a black man is seven times more likely to be shot by the police than a white person is. These have been stories that are regularly appearing in the news, from the shooting of Philando Castile in 2016 to the choking death of George Floyd last year and now this week in the shooting of Dante Wright in yet another traffic stop gone bad. At this moment, we're still awaiting the verdict in the trial of former Minneapolis officer Derek Chauvin in the choking death of George Floyd. But while demonstrations have been going on every night of the two-week trial demanding justice for George Floyd, police officers were so unaware that they added to this tension by pulling over uh, this, this 20-year-old driver, Dante Wright, and ended up shooting him to death. Now, Kim Potter, who has been on the police force longer than Dante Wright has been alive, Potter resigned, but now she's been charged with involuntary manslaughter. Involuntary manslaughter, she claims, because she thought she was holding her taser when in fact she was holding her police revolver. Maybe, maybe you could be that confused when you're that excited. She insists that the fatal shooting of Dante Wright was an accident, but something which, and I, folks, I can't even believe that I am saying this in public. But televangelist Pat Robertson finds Kim's story to be unbelievable. Folks, Pat Robertson has shown us for 40 years that he will believe almost anything. He'll say almost anything. But he literally went on TV, as you see here, holding a yellow plastic taser and a police revolver and saying, This is too much for even him to believe that she could have confused these two. Now, I don't know Kim Potter. I don't know if she's a racist. And for our purposes today, it doesn't really matter. I don't want us to think about this problem anecdotally. You know, it's not a matter of psychoanalyzing Derek Chauvin or Kim Potter, because the the real issue, we've got to be able to draw back the wide-angle lens and just look at how racism is an institutional part of our police force in the United States. It's an institutional part of our judicial system. And unfortunately, it is a big part of our military. And many members of the military retire and go back home and join the police force. And I want to think about why our judicial system seems to so blatantly favor the police, even when there is so much video evidence and multiple witnesses of inexcusable and lethal crimes being committed by the police. As arrests have mounted, it's now a 100 days since the insurrection at the Capitol, And we're discovering, as they've arrested now between 450 and 500 people, that a large number of the people they are arresting for the worst parts of that insurrection were active members of police forces or active members of military. There were thousands of people involved, and they've only arrested fewer than 500, but 20% of them have a background in police or military. And that would seem like that that would just be impossible. You just couldn't even consider it except for the fact that that insurrection was primarily motivated by racism and racism runs deep in the police force and in the military. I don't want to tar the whole of of the United States Armed Forces and all of America's police forces with a single brush because it's obviously not all of them and it's even obviously not the majority of them but it is obvious that it's too many of them and we've been ignoring it for generations and that's what I'm saying has to stop.
6: He positions himself as someone just asking the hard questions, the ones that they don't want you asking. Questions like, is affirmative action racist? And should America be selective with immigrants? And has the Democratic Party become anti-white and anti-male? Just asking questions while heavily implying that the answer to those questions is yes. But when in turn, anyone questions him... They are not just censoring free speech. They are launching an attack on the foundations of our democracy and the vast working class who this humble TV dinner princeling somehow represents. And the most telling thing about Tucker's framing of himself as the scourge of the elites and the hero of the common man is that for Tucker, who constitutes the common man, is very selective. Take Ilhan Omar. Just watch him lose his shit over a clip that he's about to play of something she said. If anyone should love America, it's Ilhan Omar.
7: This country rescued her from a squalid Kenyan refugee camp and made her a national figure, quite an ascent. But Ilhan Omar is not grateful, she hates us for it. Watch Omar tell us it is time to dismantle our country.
8: As long as our economy and political systems prioritize profit without considering who is profiting, who is being shut out, we will perpetuate this inequality. So we cannot stop at criminal justice system. We must begin the work of dismantling the whole system of oppression wherever we find it.
7: Dismantle the American economy and the American system of government, institutions that generations of Americans built over hundreds of years.
6: All right, there is already enough there in the sneering condescension that Ilhan Omar should be quietly grateful her entire life because she was granted asylum when she was a child. But let's just consider the vast distance between what you just heard her say and what he seemed to hear. Because according to Tucker, dismantling the system of oppression means dismantling the entire American economy and system of government. Now, did he inadvertently make a nuanced point about how systemic oppression is definitionally baked into every level and facet of that very same system? Yeah. Yes, he did. Am I going to give him credit for doing that? Fuck no. Especially not when this is what he said next. The problem is there are many of
7: us here who do like this country. We live here. We don't want to destroy it. We have every right to fight to preserve our nation and our heritage and our
6: culture. Wow. Preserve our heritage and culture. That is direct. In fact, his pre-written caption there, we have to fight to preserve our nation and heritage, drew a lot of comparisons to the 14 words, the famous white supremacy slogan that says, we must secure the existence of our people and a future for white children. And when you put the two together, there is, you know, a slight similarity there. I'm just saying, if you typed Tucker's quote into a blank Word document, nine times out of ten, Clippy's going to ask, are you trying to recite the 14 words? Now, of course, Clippy has been asking that a lot more ever since he started spending so much time on YouTube. Careful how much time you spend on there, Clippy. It's turning you into an arsehole. And if you think, well, come on, that seems like a bit of a stretch. You can't know what Tucker means by our heritage and culture. You should know that he hasn't always been that disciplined about his messaging. In the late 2000s, he used to call into a radio show hosted by shock jock Bubba the Love Sponge. And in those calls, the thin veil covering his racism would occasionally get thrown off in moments like this.
7: Iraq is a crappy place filled with a bunch of, you know, semi-literate primitive monkeys. But I just have zero sympathy for them or their culture, a culture where people just don't use toilet paper or forks. Okay,
6: that isn't just incredibly offensive, it's also the kind of fact-free cultural hot take that is the essential Tucker Carlson experience. Because while it is clearly by no means the most important thing there, for the record table forks were apparently first used in the Middle East and Byzantine Empire and were still conspicuously absent in Europe until centuries later. In fact, when the niece of a Byzantine emperor brought a case of forks to Venice for her wedding feast in the 11th century, she was roundly condemned by the local clergy for her decadence, with one saying, God in his wisdom has provided man with natural forks, his fingers, therefore it is an insult to him to substitute artificial metal forks for them when eating, which is Absolutely fascinating, because it's not just a full refutation of Tucker's lazy racism, it's also a very fun fork fact. Fork facts are fun! The point is, when you know how Tucker speaks when he speaks freely, the filter through which he processes the world for his audience becomes painfully apparent, because he is smart enough Not to openly say into a camera that certain races are more deserving of scorn or less worthy of respect. He will just heavily imply that depending on who he's talking about. Take the Capitol riots. Tucker said that he deplored the violence, but repeatedly compelled his viewers to try and understand where the demonstrators were coming from. On January 6th, we had a riot at the U.S. Capitol. Why did that
7: happen? It happened because millions of American voters were convinced that the last election was not fair. Where did they get that idea? Well, it wasn't simply because the last president told them so. You're hearing that now as if they're animals who take commands and do what they're told, but they're not animals. They're people. They're American citizens who can see what's happening and come to their own conclusions about it. They saw the radical increase in mail-in voting, millions did, and it corroded their faith and the public's faith in our systems
6: of election. Okay, hold on. People didn't think the election was rigged because they saw an increase in mail-in voting. They thought that because people like you repeatedly told them the election was rigged. And that plea for understanding there is especially hard to take when you contrast it with how he reacted to last summer's Black Lives Matter protests.
7: People like this don't bother to work. They don't volunteer or pay taxes to help other people. They live for themselves. They do exactly what they feel like doing. They say exactly what they feel like saying. They spray paint their opinions on buildings. On television, hour by hour, we watch these people, criminal mobs, destroy what the rest of us have built. They have no right to do that. They don't contribute to the common good. They never have. Yet
6: suddenly they seem to have all the power. Well, that's quite a different tone. And it is interesting to see who gets to be American citizens who came to their own conclusions and who gets to be criminal mobs who destroy what the rest of us have built. And it does seem like the dividing line for Tucker on that question is how easily can you sunburn? And look, my point here isn't that Tucker is inconsistent in addressing two violent protests in vastly different ways. It's that he's actually incredibly consistent. Because in both instances, his clear takeaway is that white people should be terrified at the idea of any situation where they aren't in power. The main narrative of Tucker's show is that power is being taken away from you, his viewer, and that this needs to be resisted. He's run segments just asking questions, remember? Like, how exactly is diversity our strength? And has argued not just that it isn't, but that it's a threat to our existence as a cohesive country. In fact, he'll often call to resist that threat with an interesting choice of
7: phrase. Western civilization is our birthright. It makes all good things possible— Undefended, it collapses. And so we've got to fight to preserve it. It's a war with one side trying to erase all remnants of its opponent, in this case, Western civilization. Is the culture into which they're coming, the Western civilization we're talking about, superior to the culture that these immigrants are bringing? Do you think it's possible to move a large Muslim population into the West and successfully integrate them into Western culture? Have you seen that anywhere?
6: For Tucker, it seems Western civilization is somehow both the mighty and essential bedrock upon which all modern human existence is built, and also a delicate house of cards that will collapse if you so much as look at it wrong. And again, he will be careful not to verbally link race and civilization like he's calling into a Love Sponges radio show in 2006, but he will occasionally dance incredibly close to it.
7: Let me just stipulate, I'm for getting along, I'm for colorblindness, I'm for tolerance 100%. But I also think that if things radically change in your country, it's okay for you to say, what is this? And maybe I don't want to live in a country that looks nothing
6: like the country I grew up in. Is that bigoted? Uh, yeah. Yeah, it is. That's like saying, I've got ten fingers and toes, a pointy face with a little pink rosebud mouth, a cat-sized body, a long weird tail, and I eat garbage. Does that make me a possum? Yes. Yes, it does. That's the literal definition of the thing you just described. And that is the whole thing with Tucker. He might not say black or white. He'll insist that he's for color blindness. He'll build in deniability by phrasing things as a question like, what does racism look like? What kind of embodying the answer? But when you put all of this together, the pattern is clear. He is scared of a country that looks nothing like the one he grew up in because diversity isn't our strength. Immigrants make our country poorer, dirtier, and more divided. And any attempt to change that culture is an attack on Western civilization. All of which is really just a long way of saying that when Tucker asks, what is white supremacy? The answer is basically that. It's a belief that in a country where white people are dominant, that's all down to their natural and innate abilities, and any effort to change that is an affront to the natural order of things. So, it's frankly no wonder that that guy's family watches Tucker twice a night. Of course Tucker has been endorsed by white supremacists. James Alsop, a far-right activist who marched in Charlottesville, once said this to a conference room full of fellow white supremacists. An example of someone engaging in very effective rhetoric is, of course, Tucker Carlson. Tucker is helping mainstream conservatives
7: change the way they think about politics and causing a massive swath of of Trump voters to look deeper into many of the issues that we already talk about. The left is aware of what he's doing, and he's aware of what he's doing, so it works phenomenally.
6: (laughs) Oh, that might be... The single worst laugh I have ever heard. And I say that as someone who has almost forgotten what human laughter sounds like. I've been stuck inside Casper's arsehole for 12 long months now. I'm so desperate to hear the response of a live audience. But if it is a neo-Nazi chuckle ping-ponging off the walls of a hotel ballroom, I think I might be out. And look, if everything I've shown you tonight somehow still isn't enough, let's hear from a literal former grand wizard of white Supremacists, David Duke. He's not only tweeted approvingly about Tucker in the past, saying, Tucker is right and can't cuck the tuck, which, as all Tucker viewers know, refers to when a humiliated man watches his wife have an affair. Duke even has a podcast where he sometimes just recaps Tucker's segments from the night before. Last year, when endorsing Trump for president, Duke even suggested that Tucker Carlson should be his VP, explaining Tucker's value to the white supremacist cause like
9: this. He doesn't use the word white very often, but... That's the underlying message that he's, he's showing. And he shows that there is massive racism in America against white people, while at the same time saying there's no systematic racism. But people get the message. Yeah,
6: people do get the message. Although to be fair, it's not like it's written in a complex code. It's a walking yacht club, scrunching his face up for an hour every night and saying to a conservative audience, they are coming for you in modulating tones. We're not exactly in riddle of the Sphinx territory here. And all of this is why, as tempting as it is to dismiss the controversy that follows Tucker every week as one more artifact of our outrage culture, it's important to remember that what Tucker is saying is fucking outrageous. Because no one in their right mind would sit down, pop in their headphones, fire up David Duke's podcast and think, hey, I'm not a white supremacist. But millions of people watch Tucker on TV every night spouting well-laundered versions of pretty much the same talking points. And there is real harm in that. Because while white supremacy is clearly dangerous when promoted by self-avowed white supremacists, it can actually be even more dangerous when it isn't. And what Tucker Carlson Show sells, in addition to utterly terrible pillows, is very seductive. It's the idea that this country is fundamentally colorblind, that anyone who mentions race is just trying to start trouble, that historic oppression is no longer relevant, and that, in fact, you, his viewers, are the ones currently being oppressed. And if he can sell his audience on his white identity politics, if he can persuade them that the big existential threat to America right now is diversity, it sort of doesn't matter if he says aloud what his preferred solutions to that might be. And while it's bad enough, to hear that white supremacist families gather around to watch Tucker twice? The fact is, millions of viewers a night watch him once, and once is already more than enough.
10: I've been watching these um, police encounters that have been all over the news over the past few days. The question I kept finding myself asking when I was watching the video of, of the lieutenant who gets pulled over by the cops. He's in military fatigues, He's right? One of the troops. He's being treated trash by the cops. And not like just as a troop, as a human being, he's being treated like trash. They claim they were afraid, but there's only one person exhibiting fear in that video, and it's him. And. I found myself watching that video over and over again, and I realized it's because I had one question that, that kept on nagging in my brain, and the question was, where are the good apples? Because we're told time and time again that these incidents that black Americans are experiencing are because of bad apples. Right? There are bad apples in these police departments who are doing these things. They they use chokeholds that are not allowed. They they use excessive force. They, they're, they're, they're violent in their words and their actions to the people they're meant to be protecting and serving. These are bad apples. We've got to root them out of the force. My question though is, where are the good apples? If we're meant to believe that the police system in America, the system of policing itself is not fundamentally broken, then we would need to see good apples. And by the way, I'm not saying that there are no good policemen, don't get me wrong. I'm asking where the good apples are. And what I mean by that is, where are the cops who are stopping the cop from putting their knee on George Floyd's neck? Because there's not one cop at that scene. There's one cop who's on trial, but there's not one cop at that scene, you know? Where are the other cops when Philando Castile is losing his life. Like, where, where are the cops, you know? Where are, where are the good apples? Because it's funny how we live in a society where people, people who, who defend these cops at all costs will say, oh, black on black crime, and you see these people in their communities, they don't care, but go to any black community any disenfranchised community in America, and you will find people marching against that same crime. You'll find community leaders, you'll find parents, you'll find, you'll find siblings, you'll you find people constantly saying, please, we need to stop this crime, we need to stop the gangs. We, you see the community doing something. I mean, the, the fact they call 911 when something happens, so that tells you something. But I don't seem to see that with the cops. We don't see a mass uprising of police saying, let's root out these people. We don't see, videos of police officers stopping the other cop from pushing an old man at a Black Lives Matter protest or from beating up a kid in the street with a baton. We don't see that. So my question is, where are the good apples? And honestly, I believe we don't see them not because there are no good people on the police force. I think there are many people who are good on the police force. That's why they join because they wanna do good. But I think it's because they themselves know that if they do something, they're going against the system. The system is more powerful than any individual. The system in policing is doing exactly what it's meant to do in America, and that is to keep poor people in their place. Who happens to be the most poor in America? Black people. You monetize them, you imprison them, which monetizes them again. It's a system. It's not broken. It's working the way it's designed to work. And once you realize that, I feel like you get to a place where you go, oh, we're not dealing with bad apples. We're dealing with a rotten tree that happens to grow good apples. But for the most part, the tree that was planted is bearing the fruit that it was intended to.
2: Tucker Carlson goes full insurrectionist, promotes AR-15s to use against the government. Again, let's just clearly establish, you know, again, another one of these Republican talking points because they've been bought and paid for by the gun industry. Make no mistake about it. This is a, this is a multi-billion dollar, multi-hundred billion dollar industry that pays its shills very, very well. And Prior to the 1970s, nobody in America, all the way back to the founding of our republic, nobody in America was ever trying to make the serious case that the reason the founders wrote the Second Amendment the way they did at the time they did was because they wanted Americans to have weapons that they could use against our own government. Nobody ever made that case. That case on its face is seditious. On its face is treason. Yes. Let's take down the government with guns. That's called a coup. That's not called democracy. The founders not only never imagined that if if they ever, I'm sure that they did in, in some point, you know, I mean, George Washington put down an armed rebellion. As president, he put down an armed rebellion, the Whiskey Rebellion. Uh, you know, they did not in, in their wildest dreams, think this would be a good thing. And it wasn't until the 1970s when the National Rifle Association's magazine, The Rifleman, published this article by this 17-year-old kid, this high school kid, who just kind of made up this fantasy that, that the Second Amendment was there so we could prevent tyranny. And back in the 70s, it was in the frame of, you know, if the communists ever really succeed in taking over America, we need our guns to fight back there was this big fear about the communists. Richard Nixon and, 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 you know, had been going on about that. Keep in mind, this was just a couple of years after the end of the Nixon presidency. And Nixon had been going on for, you know, at some length about, you know, the communists in Vietnam and the, com- and the, and the communists in, in the Soviet Union. And, you know, the, and, and he had been part of the whole McCarthy thing. You know, and the communists in the State Department and the communists in the Army, the Army McCarthy hearings. And so it was, yeah, we got to have our guns to protect us from the damn communists. And every time a Democrat came along and said, well, maybe we should make education free, college for free. Oh, you're a communist. Well, how about health Shouldn't everybody have health Oh, you're a communist. And it worked for years. But the NRA published this article, and it struck a chord with the white nationalists, with the people who, I mean, keep in mind, this was the same time that Brown versus Board of Education was starting to be enforced in a real way. It happened. Brown v. Board was in 1954. There was a subsequent decision a year or two later. and I, uh, Forgive me, I, I can't recall the name of it. It's been a lot of years. But there was a subsequent decision that said that, yes, Brown should be put into place. I mean, basically, the argument from the states was we need more time if we're going to desegregate our schools or if we're going to integrate our schools. We need more time. And, and so the, the Supreme Court in the second decision following Brown said, you know, well, you know, with all due, uh, whatever the word was, you know, all, you know, yes, uh, yes, but, right, essentially. And they gave them this, this, uh, you know, there's no urgency kind of message. And so it took two decades for Brown to even, you know, I mean, you know, the whole busing thing, you know, in the in the in the it happened in the 70s. And the blowback to that was, oh, my God, there's black people moving into my neighborhood. I need to have a gun. And that's that's when this that's when this thing really went Full nuts and and, well, and, and, and white people didn't want to say, well, we have to have a gun because, you know, uh, black people were rioting in Detroit, uh, you know, in response to police violence. Therefore, I need they didn't want to say that. So, oh, yeah, well, we got to fight back against the commies. And it became like an article of faith. So last night on Fox News, Tucker Carlson has this guest on. Um, uh, News Corpse over on Daily Kos refers to him as an amosexual. Uh, Kalyan Noor, who once uh, hosted a show on the on the NRA TV network, which is now out of business. So Carlson says, why, if somebody does something horrible in Boulder, does that mean you should strip the people from people the single most popular sporting rifle in America? <laughs> that would be the AR-15. The one that commits relatively few crimes. More people are killed by a factor of five by knives than by rifles in this country. Why are they so intent on taking this one away? And his guest on Fox News, this is is what your grandpa is hearing on Fox News. Honest to God. His guest says, and I quote, Because, honestly, if you really look at it, a lot of people like to undervalue what the Second Amendment was actually written for. It was designed to be a check against the government. See, here's this big lie. This is a complete lie. Anyhow, he goes on to say, a lot of people don't like to talk about that aspect. Of course, it was also there to allow us to defend ourselves. But if you think about it, the AR-15 symbolically and literally is the best defense against a tyrannical government. The best defense against a tyrannical government, as the guy who wrote the Declaration of Independence said, is an educated and informed public. And what we have is a miseducated and misinformed, malinformed public, intentionally uninformed public, or an intentionally wrongly informed public.
1: Here's a little missive. Uh, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy tweeted out today that may have had you scratching your head if you did not have the full context. Okay, I'll read it. America is built on the idea that we are all created equal, and success is earned through honest, hard work. It isn't built on identity, race, religion. The Republican Party is the party of Lincoln, the party of more opportunity for all Americans, not nativist dog whistles. Why on earth would Kevin McCarthy feel the need to declare the Republican Party is not built on race and rejects nativist dog whistles? Well, maybe because this morning Punchbowl News reported that a group of House Republicans, including Georgia's Marjorie Taylor Greene and Arizona's Paul Gosar, are forming an America First caucus to protect Anglo-Saxon political traditions. If that kind of thing sounds familiar, it's probably because that's what the former leader of the KKK, David
9: Duke, has been saying to anyone that would listen. I love my people, my heritage. I want to preserve my heritage like every people does. Preserve your heritage? What does that mean? How about European heritage? What does that mean? Look, I'll tell you what. You don't know what European heritage is. You don't know what Mozart is and Bach and Beethoven. You don't know. They're people. They come from different countries.
1: (laughs) It's actually good Bill O'Reilly there, weirdly. Uh, No, they are not white supremacists. No, they just want to protect European traditions from some non-European threat, I guess. This new Republican caucus organizing document also contains language advocating for, quote, weeding out those who refuse to abandon their old loyalties and plunge headfirst into mainstream American society. They literally want to weed out people who do not conform to their idea of American culture. Concern. Should we be able to this new caucus? I'm joined now by Adam Serwer, staff writer at The Atlantic. His latest piece is titled Restoring the Soul of the Nation Means Taking in Refugees. And Jia Lin Yang, national editor of the New York Times, her book, which has gotten incredible, incredible reviews: One Mighty and Irresistible Tide, The Epic Struggle Over Immigration, 1925 to 1965. It will be out in paperback uh next month. And uh Gia, I want to start with you because um your book, right, Book ends in 25 to 1965. Next to 1965, there's a huge piece of immigration legislation. And that's like one of the targets of of this caucus. They say an important distinction between post-1965 immigrants and previous waves of settlers is that previous cohorts were more educated, earned higher wages, did not have an expansive welfare state to fall back on when they could not make it in America and thus did not stay in the country at the expense of the native born. That's what, what what is that? As someone who studied this, like, what are they what 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 are they going on about there?
8: They weirdly really understand what they're going after, which is after 1965. That's when the law changed in the U.S. to allow many many more immigrants from outside of Europe at a level that the country had never seen before. And this Anglo-Saxon language that they're using is so important to pay attention to. Um, you know, it's not a dog whistle; it's completely explicit because that language has been used to really. They change our immigration laws to explicitly ban people who are not from Europe. It's been used before, and it's an argument that keeps recurring and recurring, because if you can control where people come from, where they immigrate from, you can control the racial makeup of America. And so I think what they're alarmed by is what's happened since 65 when we changed our laws and said, you know, you don't have to come from Europe to be able to to come here. You can come from Asia, Africa, the Middle East. And since that change, we've seen all around us how many more immigrants from around the world are here. And it really has changed the country. But I think for this group, it's made them incredibly anxious. They have, I think, correctly assessed that the 65 law was the moment everything changed. And they're invoking very old arguments that have been around um, for over a century to say that Anglo-Saxon political identity is what makes America America. And anyone who is not isn't properly American. They've used this argument against Jews, Catholics, anyone who is not white, Protestant, and quote-unquote Anglo-Saxon, um, people have argued for many years don't belong in America based on their race and their religion.
1: Yeah, when we tr- use the term, Adam, white nationalism, which has been used a lot, I think, right, you know, understandably recently, like this is really at the core of it was this idea uh, articulated by this guy, Nick Fuentes, um, uh, at a you know, who has a group called America First that Paul Gosar went to his conference at, Right. If America ceases Quente. to retain the English cultural framework, the Im- influence of European civilization, if it loses its white demographic core, it loses faith in Jesus Christ, it is not America anymore. Like, that is what white nationalism sounds like. That is what it is. And that
9: appears to be what's represented here. Yeah, I mean, Fuentes, a, a nice uh, traditional Anglo-Saxon name. Look, Anglo-Saxon doesn't actually refer to the actual Germanic people who inhabited Britain in the, in the Middle Ages. Rather, it refers to this Pseudoscientific idea that Americans are descended from uh, ancient Germanic chieftains, and that's what gr- gr- makes American society so great. It's an ideological belief in the superiority of a certain group of white people that has been used to justify the genocide of Native Americans, it's been used to justify slavery, manifest destiny, and the like. Um, and eventually, in the 20th century, it evolves in, into eugenics, and it becomes the basis of of immigration laws that, you know, as was just stated, targeted not just Africans and Asians and barred them from immigrating to the country, but also uh, Jews and Italians, people who were, uh, you know, who today, you know, are generally considered white, but who at the time were considered uh, inferior white races, who would dilute the pure Germanic blood uh, that made America great. So when people say uh, Anglo-Saxon, it is not a dog whistle. It is a foghorn. It is the Uh, It is a nod to one of the most dangerous and destructive pseudoscientific beliefs in the history of the world and one that has led to mass murder all over the planet. It's really disgusting. And that's why McCarthy, someone who is hardly friendly to immigrants, is saying, uh, yeah, I don't want to have anything to do with this.
3: It was just over two years ago that a heavily armed man in Christchurch, New Zealand walked into two mosques and began shooting the men, women and children who had gathered in them to pray. When he was done, 51 people lay dead, 40 more were wounded. The killer left behind an 87-page manifesto titled The Great Replacement, in which he argued that the white race was dying out, being invaded and replaced by non-white immigrants." A few months later, that manifesto helped inspire a Texas man to walk into an El Paso Walmart with an assault weapon and begin shooting. He killed 23 people and wounded 23 more. It was, the New York Times reported, the deadliest anti-Latino attack in modern American history. And like the Christchurch shooter, the El Paso killer too cited the white supremacist Great Replacement Theory, writing that he was fighting a Hispanic invasion of Texas. These murders came two years after white nationalists bearing torches gathered in Charlottesville, Virginia, chanting, Jews will not replace us. And a year after, another gunman murdered 11 people in a Pittsburgh synagogue blaming Jews for bringing in an invasion of non-white immigrants to America. The Great Replacement, a bigoted, morally bankrupt conspiracy theory that has spurred white supremacists on multiple continents to murder non-white people. A dangerous conspiracy theory that is now getting a platform on primetime television in the U.S. Now, I know that the left and all the little
7: gatekeepers on Twitter become literally hysterical if you use the term replacement, if you suggest that the Democratic Party is trying to replace the current electorate the voters now casting Mm. ballots with new people more obedient voters from the third world but they become hysterical because that's that's what's happening actually let's just say it that's Mm. true i have less political power because they're importing a brand new electorate why should i sit
3: back and take that sick stuff sickening and i know it's fox news and we on this show have chosen not to focus too often on the lies from Fox News, because you could do an entire episode on them every night. But this is different. This is really, really shocking and unacceptable. This is the mainstreaming of neo-Nazi hatred in America. So what can be done about it? After Fox's Tucker Carlson embraced the great replacement theory on his show last week, the Anti-Defamation League sent a letter to the leadership of Fox News. Given his long record of race-baiting, ADL director Jonathan Greenblatt wrote, we believe it is time for Carlson to go. In a response yesterday, Fox CEO Lachlan Murdoch, son of Rupert, stood fully behind Carlson. He said the Fox host wasn't really espousing the great replacement theory and added that the ADL had once given Murdoch's father an award. Perhaps Lachlan Murdoch just doesn't watch his own channel. Here was Carlson last night. Demographic change is the key
7: to the Democratic Party's political ambitions. Let's say that again for emphasis because it is the secret to the entire immigration debate. Demographic change is the key to the Democratic Party's political ambitions. In order to win and maintain power, Democrats plan to change the population of the country.
3: Twenty-one minutes. That's how much of his show Tucker Carlson devoted to doubling down on the Great Replacement Theory last night, to convincing his viewers that they are being replaced by immigrants, spurred on by one particular political party. He said this on the same day that a Washington Post analysis showed that domestic terrorism has reached highs not seen since the data was first collected in 1994. That rise was driven chiefly by white supremacist, anti-Muslim and anti-government extremists on the far right. Extremists who love Tucker Carlson. Don't take my word for it. I'm just a brown immigrant. Take the word of Derek Black, a former white supremacist whose father founded the neo-Nazi website Stormfront. Here he is in 2019 talking about his racist parents' TV viewing habits. My family watches Tucker Carlson's show once and then watches it on the replay because they feel that he is making the white nationalist talking points better than they have. And they're trying to get some tips on how to how to advance it. Wow. Wow. Tucker Carlson is the highest rated host on one of the most watched cable channels in America. He's even been mentioned as a possible GOP presidential candidate in 2024. And he's using his huge platform to mainstream racist lies that get people murdered. Just think about how many people every night are being told by this guy, who they trust, that black and brown foreigners, people like me, are being brought in to replace them. And the powers at Fox News apparently have no intention of stopping him. The Murdochs, in fact, are enabling this bigoted rhetoric. So what can be done? This is scary stuff. And how long will it take before Carlson's nightly incitement is consigned to the dustbin of history, where it belongs with every other white supremacist theory, trope, and mantra? I'm joined now to talk about all this by Adam Sir, a politics writer at The Atlantic and author of the upcoming book The Cruelty is the Point, Essays on Trump's America. Adam, great to have you back on the show. Tucker Carlson... And Lachlan Murdoch say, well, it's not great replacement theory. It's not that at all. This is not white supremacy. Let's just be clear. This is great replacement theory, is it not? And how shocked are you to see it on primetime U.S. television?
9: Um, unfortunately, I'm not very shocked. Uh, t- you know, Tucker Carlson has been doing this for years. Uh, you know, uh, in 2018, I wrote a piece about how, despite the fact um, that the murder of Heather Heyer in Charlottesville had discredited the alt-right in its attempt to mainstream itself. What had happened is that people like Tucker Carlson and, and Laura Ingram had taken up this rhetoric of, quote, replacement, where they argue that, uh, you know, as Tucker Carlson put it, and you know, immigrants from the third world who are obedient and will vote Democratic. And I want to say this is racist in two specific ways. One is the assumption that people from, quote, the third world are more obedient, or, or somehow, you know, incapable, genetically incapable of being conservative. We know this isn't true. For one thing, a lot of people, a lot of immigrants from Latin America, for example, are coming from you know, countries that have liberal left-wing governments, and so they're actually more conservative than you would expect them to be. The assumption that somehow only white people can be really conservatives is itself racist. But the other part is that, you know, what they're saying is that America is fundamentally a white Christian ethnostate. And so the presence of people who are not white Christians is a denial of white Americans' rightful heritage, which is control over the country. And this idea is not particularly original. It's the source of the racist immigration restrictions that were adopted by the United States at the turn of the century to exclude people from Africa, people from Asia, even Jews and Italians um, that were repealed in the 1960s. That, you know, people like Stephen Miller Miller think of this as a great tragedy because America repealed uh, its sort of racial conception of citizenship. Yes. Um, And this, I mean, the the damage that this conspiracy theory, or it's not even a conspiracy, it is an ideological statement of values about white people being better than other people and about America's fundamental essence uh, having to do with white Christianity. This theory has, uh, you know, caused, had incredibly ruinous consequences all over the world, not just in the United States, Um, And and there's nothing particularly uh, original or intellectual or clever about it. They're simply repeating the racism that we saw at the turn of the century, uh, you know, with the nativists and and the people who designed America's uh, immigration restriction laws at that time, particularly to keep out non-whites and Jews.
1: We've just heard
0: clips today, starting with All In, with Chris Hayes directly comparing the policing of street protests with the police presence at the Capitol insurrection. Roger Ray, in one of his progressive faith sermons, detailed the deep strain of racism in our police and military. John Oliver, on Last Week Tonight, took on Tucker Carlson. Trevor Noah, on The Daily Show, asked about all the good apples among the police, Tom Hartman highlighted the absurdity of the founders encouraging a policy to arm citizens against the government. All In with Chris Hayes looked at the formation of the America First Caucus and the 1965 immigration reform, and The Mehdi Hassan Show highlighted Tucker Carlson's embrace of the Great Replacement Theory and the full endorsement from white supremacists that he enjoys. That's what everyone heard, but members also heard a bonus clip from the Muckrake political podcast discussing the macro-dynamics at play in police militarization, an idea called the rebound effect that happens when empires over-militarize abroad, but eventually crack down at home as well. For non-members, those bonus clips are linked in the show notes and are part of the transcript for today's episode, so you can still find them if you want to make the effort. But to hear that and all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly into your podcast feed, sign up to support the show at bestofleftcom slash support, or request a financial hardship membership because we don't make a lack of funds a barrier to hearing more information. Every request is granted, no questions asked. And now, I would normally, once again, be saying that we'll be hearing from you, but today is entirely different than usual. Nothing like this has happened in a decade or more. I have a guest joining me. So, joining me is none other than Dr. Roger Ray. Hello, Roger. Hi, Jay. This is a special occasion. As I told the folks at the beginning of the show, we had a big announcement. And well, I didn't say you were involved, but they heard (laughs) from you in the show today. And I said, I had an announcement, but the truth is that we have an announcement that we're going to be doing a live event as a fun experiment. The driving force of which is a conversation between us about community. So we think that this is going to be a different kind of live event than you might be thinking of. Roger, you've been doing live events now, you know, weekly for a little while in, in your community just on zoom, right? Yes.
5: And we're all getting pretty tired of it, I guess. <laughs>
0: and I think that that is the instinctual response that a lot of people might have like, Oh no, another zoom event. But I think this one is different enough that it's going to pique some people's interest. So it is primarily going to feature a conversation between us. And you can watch us have a conversation live. We're going to be talking about community, the value and importance of it, the lack of it that we have been missing during the pandemic and so forth. But we wanted to have an event that incorporates interaction with the audience so that is going to include both Q&A interactions and small group sort of breakout groups where people can actually communicate with each other, which we thought was fitting for a discussion about community.
5: Yeah. I, it's a it's a topic of big concern for me and not just community in the sense of being neighborly. I've done a, a lot of work over the last few years with this book that I've told you about, Jay uh, Johan Hari's Lost Connections. Because looked at from uh, a psychological vantage point, I worked with a a psychologist in doing some conferences on suicide prevention and treatment for depression. And uh, it turns out that having a vital connection to nature, to meaningful work, and to intimate relationships, friendships and family relationships... That is the best treatment, by far better than serotonin drugs, not that I'm giving pharmacological advice, but there's something to being a tree hugger, actually having a vital connection to nature and vital friendships that can pull us out of depression, can prevent suicide. And even it has affects on the stress levels that we feel that that cause high blood pressure and that cause diabetes and eating disorders. But then the pandemic comes along. And so, you know, like the most successful addiction treatment in the world uh, has been the 12-step movement for all of its failings. But what it does well is that it puts people together around a table who are all sharing the common goal of sobriety. And really that connection is what makes it work. So the pandemic comes along and we tell all these millions of people, that they should no longer attend meetings. So, is it any surprise when you go to the grocery store and the the guy behind you has a, a buggy full of liquor bottles? That uh, alcohol abuse, drug abuse, suicide attempts, depression, all of the opioid addictions—they've all gone through the roof during the pandemic. So, how do we create community when we really need to not be touching each other or breathing on each other so much now? Hopefully, the vaccines are going to allow us some greater contact. But it's not, I guess, what I'm trying to say, Jay, for me, this subject goes to the very heart of my work and not just about having more friends and backyard cookouts. It's it's about preventing addiction, suicide, and depression. Absolutely. And so,
0: Amanda got her hands on a thesaurus today and informed me that what we're having is a a colloquy. I imagine you know what that is.
5: I, I at least attended a lot of them at Vanderbilt. I don't know that I ever questioned the fact that I was going to be in a room where I had to listen to other people's views. (laughs)
0: There we go. Yeah, so it's the distinction between a live show, come watch us have a conversation. This really is a conversation that we want to have with other people. And we think we have a platform that's going to allow that to happen and happen well. So we'll be talking about it as the date nears, but the event is coming up on May 10th, 8pm Eastern, a link to register, just to pre-register for free, just so you get reminders later, are in the show notes for today's episode. You can also go to bestofaleft.com slash live, and that will just take you right to where you need to go. But Roger, while I had you, the, the timing couldn't be more perfect because what I didn't have time to get into the show today was Tucker Carlson's response the ADL, the Anti-Defamation League, very pro-Israel, a lobby group, you know, they, they are on the guard against anti-Semitism, wherever it rears its head. They called out Tucker Carlson for his white supremacy. We didn't have time to get the, this into the show, but his response to them was telling on multiple levels. And he basically argued that, well, what I'm doing, calling for nationalism in America, is is really not so different than what Israel is calling for and what the ADL themselves has touted quite strongly. And I thought, I literally don't know anyone who I'd rather ask about that than Roger Ray.
5: (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, thanks for that. As as you have heard me say in the past, I'm not the asshole whisperer. So I I don't know if interpreting Tucker Carlson is something that either he or I would be comfortable with, but If what Tucker is saying is that Israel is guilty of nationalized racism, I agree. Israel is guilty of that. But in a lot of ways, England and the United States set them up for failure by trying to steal Palestinian land in the 1940s to create a Jewish homeland. We solved a European sin by stealing property from people that weren't involved in the Holocaust. So we put a Jewish minority in the middle of a huge Muslim part of the world, and now if they give Arabs citizenship, then the Jewish state would be voted out of existence. If they form a two-state solution, then they recognize that the hostility that exists all around them Other than the Mediterranean Sea, Israel is completely surrounded by people that don't want them to exist. And so I understand that Israel is doing horrible, racist, nationalist stuff, and I wish that we had given them New Jersey instead of that particular piece of land, but it's an unwinnable situation. But I still would say that what Tucker Carlson said on that program was fundamentally a confession that what he is advocating for is... Racist. He doesn't want to talk about race. But when you're talking about being replaced, is he talking about Latin Americans? Is he talking about immigrants from other nations? Or is it really just the old Nazi trope of uh, fear of uh, brown skinned people and fear of Jews? Yeah, yep. Um, I, think, uh, I think that sums it up well. Um, okay. Well, I'm, I'm definitely
0: looking forward to our conversation with each other and and anyone else who wants to join. Again, we're, we're going to be telling you about it as the date approaches, but it's uh, May 10th, 8 p.m. Eastern time, and there's a link to all the details
5: in the show notes. May I add one further invitation? You know... Jay and I both work in a medium. I've got a small seated congregation in Springfield, Missouri that I actually know and visit in their homes and what have you. But Jay and I both know that we've got tens of thousands of listeners, mostly in the United States, but also Canada and England and Ireland, Scotland, South Africa, Australia. But it's such a one-way form of communication. You occasionally get call-in responses. You get some emails. I get a lot of emails and I sometimes get calls and visits from people, but the overwhelming majority of people who would be our best friends if we knew them and lived near them, we've never met. I wish you would join us on this program and join in the conversation and give us a chance to connect with you. Now, just one addendum to that as a
0: pretty severe introvert myself, I'm very sensitive to how encouraging community discussion might uh, cause just as many people to run screaming as it would uh, attract people. I want to emphasize that the community engagement aspect of the event is entirely optional. I hope that everyone will feel comfortable enough to engage when the time actually comes, but don't let that scare you away. You can come, you can watch the live show and not see another human being, or have them see you in any sense. So don't let that be the thing that scares you off. I promise that this event will meet every single person exactly where they are at their own comfort level. And as promised... More details to come. For now, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991 or by emailing me to j at bestofleft.com. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio Ben, Dan, and Ken for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic design, webmastering, and everything else. And of course, thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestoftheleft.com slash support, as that is absolutely how the program survives.